what am I supposed to do now? I had a terrible dream two nights ago that I got up here and realized that I hadn't prepared and I had nothing to say and everybody cheered. <laughs> First of all, thank you so very much for all of you being here and for those of you that couldn't that you're able to watch on live stream all the way over to my brothers Joshua and Felix in India and their families and the people that are watching over there right now staying up late at night so that they can be a part of this. Thank you so much. I uh, look around and have seen so many of you as you came in and others of you that I haven't had a chance yet to see and I hope I get to and spend some personal time with you because every one of you has had a major part of my life. You have uh, uh, captured my hearts over the years and whether you're still here at Calvary or not, there is nothing that can diminish what God has done in both of us, in each of us, as his instruments of his grace to accomplish his divine purpose. So thank you all who have come today to first and foremost honor the Lord Jesus Christ for his faithfulness in my life. I have done nothing of any eternal value except by the power of the Holy Spirit in me through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And may all glory and honor and praise be unto him and him alone today and every day for the rest of our lives. After 44 years of pastoral ministry, 27 which were spent right here at Calvary, it's impossible to summarize all that God has done. But let it be known that God is not done. He is not done with this local body of Christ, and he's not done with me. Until I take my last breath, or until Jesus returns to rapture all the saints into his eternal presence, I will serve him according to the gifts he has given me. I struggled for the last year with what I would say to all of you on this day. How would I challenge the new leadership of Calvary to remain faithful to God's word and be filled with grace while teaching its truth? How would I encourage you, the disciples of Jesus, to be filled with the love of God and to engage in the spiritual mission of proclaiming salvation to all people? Should I warn you, like Moses and Joshua did for the people of Israel, that that there are dangers ahead if we neglect the word of God and adopt the principles of our culture? How would I make sure that at the end of this series or this day today, every person has heard that they can be more in love with Jesus than they are with their possessions or their positions or their power or their passions or even the other people in their lives? And what can I say that will propel you as an individual and as a church to be identified by only one thing, your love for Jesus and not for anything else. And over the last year, I've studied many passages of Scripture, and I've even told some of you what I was thinking I might do. And it all changed one morning in the shower. 
the Holy Spirit directed my thinking to a series of words. And it was clear to me that today would not be about correction. Today would not be about concerns. Today would not be about challenges. Today would be about Christ and Christ alone. Because it must always be all about Jesus. And to fit in with Pastor Josh's sermon series right now, I want to leave you that we, to, with these words that we are compelled to focus on Jesus. There is only one thing I want to leave all of you with today, the love of Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf. There is nothing other than Jesus that motivates ministry because without the love of Jesus, no ministry, no activity is of any eternal value. I appreciate the fact that Alexi chose as the opening song today a song by Phil Wickham. I appreciate the fact that Matt and the worship team were sensitive to my heritage of hymns. And I appreciate the fact that we're going to close the service today with another Phil Wickham song that has been one of the most powerful worship songs for me personally in my life since it came out a couple of years ago. And I think that right now in the contemporary Christian music scene, Phil Wickham is setting the standard for what it means to worship Jesus Christ with every lyric of every song. And he's got a new song out. I heard it for the first time this week. I added it to the introduction of this sermon yesterday. It's called, This is Our God. Listen to the words of this. Read along. Remember those walls that we called sin and shame? They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came, and he died, and he rose. And those walls are rubble now. Remember those giants we called death and grave? They were like mountains that stood in our way, but he came and he died and he rose. Those giants are dead now. Remember that fear that took our breath away? Faith so weak that we could barely pray? But he heard every word, every whisper. Now those altars in the wilderness tell the story of his faithfulness. Never once did he fail, and he never will. This is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. He bore the cross Beat the grave, let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. Hallelujah. So you may be wondering what the series of words was that came to me in the shower. And when you hear it, you're going to think, that guy really is weird. Amen. Amen. Your pastor leading the way in praise. <laughs> Here's the series of words. I'm going to say them really fast, but then we're going to break them down, and you're going to think, oh my goodness, this is going to be a long sermon. Yep. <laughs> I want you to be left here with this. Jesus came 
to glorify, testify, satisfy, ratify, justify, sanctify, qualify, purify, gratify, and unify, and he's assigned us the mission to amplify. Imagine getting that running through your mind while you're taking a shower. You have all of those words for you on either the Church Center app where the notes are or on the written page. All those answers are there to fill in the blanks. Uh, and we're going to break that down. And I'm going to do it with as much enthusiasm and energy as possible because there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this life or in this world that should be more energizing to us than these truths. Nothing. You should not cheer louder at a football game or a basketball game than you do in the presence of God's people praising Jesus Christ who died for you. And yet we sit as a church so many times stoically instead of standing spontaneously and shouting the praises of Jesus consistently and constantly and letting Christ know that he's more important to us than any upcoming football draft or any basketball game or any NCAA tournament that's coming up or any sporting event or any other event that you ever go to in your life and you unashamedly wear all kinds of weird clothing to draw attention to yourself so that you can stand and cheer and shout and let your voice be heard among 60,000 other people and when there's only three or 400 in a room, we can't hear you. And so I'm going to do this enthusiastically today because there is nothing, nothing more important or more significant to us than these truths that, first of all, Jesus came to glorify God. Jesus came to this earth to glorify God. I'm not going to spend very much time on any of these points, but you're going to hear a lot of scripture today because it is the power of God through the word of God that transforms our lives. And Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, starting in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before, with you before the world existed. Jesus came for one purpose, to glorify the Father. And the function of glorifying the Father that he accomplished was to make Jesus Christ the salvation that he brought to us, available to every one of us. Jesus came to earth from the Father, full of grace and truth, to glorify the Father by accomplishing the redemption of sinful mankind. That's why Jesus came, because we all needed it. And secondly, Jesus came to testify to the Father's love. He came to glorify the Father in his purpose. He came to testify to the Father's love. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes on him would not perish, but have eternal life. 
And John says it again this way, under the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He came to testify, to manifest the love of God to us. None of us in this room know what love is unless we know the love of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the living testimony of the unfailing love of God. Thirdly, Jesus came to satisfy the Father's justice. He came to satisfy the Father's justice. Those of you that understand salvation, you understand that you were separated by your sin from God for all eternity. There was nothing you could do. There was no one you could ever become. There was nothing that you could ever accomplish that would earn the favor of God so that he would look at you and say, you know what, I'll make an exception on your behalf. You don't have to die the death that Jesus died. You don't have to come to me through the Son. You can come to me through your own works, through your own identity, through your own passions. There is none of us in this room that can say that. No one in history has ever been able to. For we have all sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the book of Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is telling us a list of all the different sins that manifest themselves in the lives of unsaved and even sometimes saved people. And, And Paul said this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath of God is coming against all sin, but in Christ, in Jesus, he has satisfied the Father's justice of that wrath, and he has made it possible for us to be satisfied in the presence of God for all eternity, but not just for us to be satisfied, but for God to be satisfied that Jesus has paid the price. Look at Romans 3.25. God put Jesus forth as the satisfaction of our sin by his blood. Jesus gave himself for your sin that condemned you to an eternal separation from the Father. He willingly put himself in harm's way under the wrath of God to be punished with death and suffering so that in Christ you would be delivered from the wrath to come. Jesus came to satisfy the Father's justice. And 1 John 4.10 tells us this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And when he did that, The next point is Jesus came to ratify the new covenant. He came to ratify the new covenant. 
Hebrews chapter 9 tells it this way. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let me summarize that for you. Under the law, we're all guilty. None of us can measure up to the perfection of Jesus Christ None of us can measure up to the perfection of God. None of us can ever hope to earn enough extra credit to make up for all the ways we've already failed. There is nothing we can do to perfect ourselves. But when a death occurred at the end of the old covenant, so that a new covenant could be established by that death, the forgiveness of sins through the shedding of one Holy blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed from the transgressions that were committed by all of us breaking the law. None of us in Christ are guilty anymore. None of us are guilty anymore. Jesus ratified a new covenant and that's what we're going to celebrate when we take communion right now. Would you take out your cups? Peel off the top layer. If you can, I always seem to get one. Oh, there, I got it. And take out the bread and then carefully peel back the cup so you're ready to drink it. And I want to read you a passage of scripture about the new covenant that Jesus spoke to his disciples when they took communion. In Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. This bread represents a body of flesh that Jesus lived in so that he could bear all of the suffering of my sin and yours. When you eat this bread, you're doing much more than just having a snack. You're standing before Almighty God and you're saying, you gave yourself in human form to suffer the beatings and the whippings and the bloodshed and the nailings to a cross to pay the price for my sin and you suffered for me and as you eat this bread would you thank him for his suffering And after they ate the bread, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews tells us that once the blood of Jesus Christ was shed and offered on the eternal altar in the presence of God in his throne room, that there is never again a need for the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. It has been done once and for all. He ratified a new covenant and we are forgiven, not because we drink this juice, but because we have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sin. As you drink this, thank him for the new covenant of your forgiveness. Amen. And as a result of him ratifying the new covenant, Jesus came to justify the guilty. Justify. The word justify means to declare absolutely innocent to the extent that it cannot even be proven that you ever did it. Think about that. You've not only been declared innocent by Jesus, but God cannot remember that you were ever guilty. Okay, I need to say that again because that went over your heads or under your chairs. I don't know which, but you're either avoiding it or sitting on it because you don't want it to really make you jump up and shout and say, thank you, I'm innocent. Because Jesus not only declared you innocent of all of your sin, but God cannot even now remember that you were ever guilty. Amen. We have this idea that somehow God sits up there and he remembers that, oh yeah, they're going back to the way they used to be. He can't remember how you used to be. You are declared justified for all eternity. You are innocent forever until you sin again. But you're still innocent in standing before God. But the guilt of a current sin is keeping you from fellowship with God. And it needs to be confessed. 1 John 1, 9, whoever will confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you for those sins and to cleanse you from that current unrighteousness. But don't ever confuse that with the idea that God somehow still sees you as guilty because you're not. Otherwise, you've never been justified. Because justify means that just as if I never sinned. And that's how God remembers you. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can you, how can you be at peace with a God who remembers sin? <laughs> you can't be at peace with a God who remembers sin. You can only be at peace with a God who doesn't remember sin. And because he doesn't see sin in you, you can be at peace with him. That's the forgiving power of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You are innocent. You have been justified. Hallelujah. I told you I was going to do this enthusiastically. This is, the, this is the gospel, people, and this is all we have. 
And because we're justified, Jesus came to sanctify the unholy. Because we're justified, he came to sanctify the unholy. Oh yeah, I still have moments of unholiness in my life. I still have thoughts, I still have sin, I still have things that creep in, that tempt. And there's an occasional yes to the temptation. And you do too. But Jesus came to set you apart for a specific, and in this biblical context, a sacred purpose. He came to sanctify the unholy. That means to make you more and more holy every day. And what's the standard of holiness? The perfection of Christ himself in whom never was once ever any contradiction. I came across that uh, in my prayer time one time, probably about 15 years ago, I came across that definition with the Holy Spirit that um, to sanctify and to be holy means to be without contradiction. And I've told you that before if you've been in this church long enough. I've told you that to be sanctified means to become without contradiction so that there's no part of your life that is ever different than any other part of your life. It's all lived in the one context of the glory of God. You don't have compartments that you get to pick and choose. Today I'm going to look like this. Today I'm going to look like this. Today I'm going to act like this with that person because I need them to accept me and I'm going to ignore the fact that I'm already fully accepted by Christ. I'm not allowing myself to become more and more consistent in my sanctification so that there are no contradictions within me. Hebrews 13, 12 says Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's not by your choices that you can sanctify yourself. It's by the blood of Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, it says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all, for by one single offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, you've already been declared holy. How are you doing in measuring up to that holiness? Because you're growing in your sanctification every day. Jesus came to sanctify all the unholiness right out of us. And then Jesus came to qualify the unworthy. To qualify the unworthy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unworthiness of man declared, You're unworthy to be in the presence of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, my theme verse of my personal identity, giving thanks to the Father who has, Rich, thank you. Rich and I were talking about that before the service. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How many of you are qualified? How many of you... How many of you are going to be really honest right now and say you clapped without really meaning it because you think you still have to do something to qualify yourself? You still think you have to do something to measure up to a certain standard in order for God to finally recognize you and finally qualify and finally give you your inheritance? Or how many of you truly believe You truly believe that at the moment that Jesus Christ saved you, justified you, set you apart for his purpose, that he gave you the identity of his son, Jesus Christ, who is fully qualified. So therefore, you are fully qualified to be an inheritor of all things with all the saints in the kingdom of light. Do you believe that? Amen. You're qualified, even though we were unworthy. And then Jesus came to purify his people. He came to purify his people. So many of these scripture passages are... um, I was talking to Mike Sommerfeld before the service, and I uh, I, um, was looking... I was looking for in my, all of my files, because I have everything in my files, that most of them are all on computer now since about 2004. But prior to 2004, everything's in written form, and it's in all my file drawers at my home, in my home office. And I was looking through, because I wanted to find the very first sermon I ever preached here at Calvary as the pastor. And I f- didn't date any of them back then. And I couldn't find it until just now in my spirit, the Lord reminded me that it was based on this passage of Scripture in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For it is the purpose for which any of us exist. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Oh, how I have prayed all my ministry life that those verses would define me. And how thankful I am for God's faithfulness to me even when they didn't. That we are denying and renouncing all ungodliness and worldly passion. And we are being purified by the power of Jesus Christ in us to do the work that he has prepared for us. If you go back to that song I started with from Phil Wickham about this is our God, there's a bridge in that song that I didn't read as a part of the lyrics. Some of you that know the song wondered why I didn't read the bridge because it's more appropriate to read it at this point because it fits. So here's the bridge from that song. 
Who pulled me out of that pit? He did. He did. Who paid for all of our sin? Nobody but Jesus. Who rescued me from that grave? Yahweh, Yahweh. Who gets the glory and praise? Nobody but Jesus. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live righteously and soberly in this godly age while we wait for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us and purify us as a people who are ready to do his works and to do them zealously, enthusiastically. And because all that is true about us, we also know that Jesus came to gratify the saint, to gratify the saint. Oh, probably way too much in our modern culture. That's the only thing that people talk about in the church today is how can I get my needs met? What did Jesus ever really do for me? I mean, I'm still fighting with my finances. I'm fighting with this and that and all the other stuff. Listen, Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Do you think he wants to gratify you in your life? Yes, he does. But be careful how you define gratification. You cannot divide, define gratification by earthly standards. You can only define gratification by God's spiritual standards in your life. And Jesus said, I'll give you that abundantly. And then Jesus came to unify the body. To unify the body. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer again, Jesus said this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. I loved them even as you loved me. That they may become perfectly one. The imperfection of the oneness of Christ's body in our world today is terribly frustrating. So many of you that I see in this room today do not go to Calvary. Some of you still live here in Eau Claire and you've chosen to go to a different church. Some of you were sent there as church planters. Some of you were sent there because of other personal issues or whatever choices you made. And when I see you, I want you to know that I do not see the differences that caused us to be separated. You may see them when you see me. That's on you. That's between you and God. I do not see those differences. I want to see in this community God's people standing up as one in such a strong and powerful love for Jesus that when I see you in Walmart, I don't go, oh, I wonder if I should go say hi to them because I know how hurt they've been. 
that I walk over and I eavesdrop on your conversation because all you're talking about is Jesus. That I walk over and I eavesdrop on your conversation at work someday and you're in the coffee room or you're at work and you're stocking shelves at Shields or whatever you're doing and all you're doing is humming some spiritual song to encourage your heart so that when the net, that next person comes in, you can profess to them the joy of Jesus because he saved you. He gave you life and there's nothing more important than that and it doesn't matter what any doctrinal difference we may have. It doesn't matter whether you stand on this camp or that camp, doesn't matter what you believe about the rapture or the not rapture, doesn't none of that matters people we love Jesus and we are one in Christ the question is are we perfectly one may not be Humanly, well, absolutely not humanly possible. But Jesus said it. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. What does it depend on? What's, your, what's the glory of your life? You're never going to be one with other Christians if the glory of your life is your doctrinal stand on a certain position. The glory of your life can never be your doctrinal stand. The glory of your life can never be your preferences for whether you should do this or do that in some gray area of conscious choice for every Christian. The glory of your life can never be those things. The glory of your life can only be the glory of Jesus Christ in you. And when the glory of Jesus Christ is in you, the glory of Jesus Christ will make you perfectly one with everybody else who has the glory of Jesus Christ in them. And that's what the church of the Chippewa Valley needs. That's what the church, wherever you come from, wherever you are, that's what the churches need to hear. The glory of the unification of the body of Christ because our glory is in Christ and Christ alone, not in any other issue of life. And I will pray for that for this church and for your church. And pray that God will still use me to bring that hope to the body of Christ around the world. So that's everything that Jesus did for, well, it's not everything, but it's everything I wanted to talk about today of what Jesus did for us. But I'm not done. Don't get comfortable. It's only 11.37. Josh goes till 10 to 12. <laughs> Jesus did all of this so that we may amplify his kingdom. Jesus has given us everything we need for life and vitality. Everything. Paul says that in Ephesians. He's given us absolutely everything we need for life and vitality. And Jesus has granted us gifts and told us to use them to serve him. And he illustrated that by telling a parable to his disciples and to all the people that were listening in Luke chapter 19. And this is what the parable was. Jesus said, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, silver, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. I like the King James Version here. Occupy till I return. Occupy till I return. The story goes on and it's all printed there for you. I'm not going to take the time to read it. While he was gone, and when he came back rather, he gathered all the ten servants together and he started investigating what they had done with the resources they had given them. The first guy had invested his one mina and he had turned it into ten. The second guy had invested his one mina and he had turned it into five. The third guy had said, I'm afraid. I have fear. I don't know what the culture is going to do to me. I don't know what the bank system is going to do. I don't know what people are going to think of me if I go out and represent this king by trying to make money off of his money. I don't know what's going to happen to me, so I'm just going to bury it in the backyard, and I'm going to keep it for myself so I can at least give him back what he gave me. And when he gave back to, to, the, to the nobleman what he had been given, the nobleman said, would you please take everything away from that man that he's ever owned, take everything away from him that he has ever had, and would you beat him and curse him, and would you put him to death and his whole family so that you can give everything he had to the people who know what to do with it? That's a harsh story. That's a very harsh story. But don't avoid the point of the story. The point of the story is that guy didn't occupy until the nobleman returned. He didn't use what he had been given for the glory of the one that had given it to him. And that word occupy means to engage in business so that it produces an increase to amplify. That's my word. Amplify. And I wonder, I wonder as I leave this place, I wonder how long it will take for me to hear the scuttlebutt around the community that the kingdom of God is amplifying at Calvary and that people are being saved and they're having baptism services like crazy because all of a sudden, all the people that attend and you can think about this for your church too if you're from somewhere else, that all the people that attend finally understand what Jesus did for them and that it's the most absolutely significant thing ever to happen in your life and it's the only thing worth living for and that they are going to go about the occupation of this culture for Jesus Christ and for his glory alone. To occupy, to be about the business of Jesus and make the most of what he has given you. But let me, let me caution you. We cannot occupy without grace. Jesus our Lord has not assigned us the task of delivering judgment. He has commissioned us to be ministers of grace. His grace. God's unconditional offer of forgiveness to the vilest of sinners who believes on his son Jesus. <clears throat> Yet we prefer judgment. We prefer to point out the wrongs of others and demand justice. We prefer to alienate ourselves from those who have no right to hurt us. We are no better than the Pharisees of Jesus' day who lived in their lofty towers of self-made righteousness and looked down on everyone who wasn't like them. 
We have decided that unless people can measure up to our standards, they cannot be included in our lives. We must grow in grace. Our local churches would be radically different if Jesus' followers would treat each other with grace. Our communities would be transformed if Jesus' followers would treat citizens with grace. Our world would be turned upside down if they saw those who have the knowledge of God living out the grace of God. But our growth in knowledge has served only to increase our pride in what we know when Jesus, who knows all things, expressed grace toward those who didn't know. We must grow in grace. Do not use your knowledge as a means of self-affirmation. Do not allow your knowledge to alienate you from those who do not know. Do not take pride in your doctrinal position. But rather let all knowledge of God lead you to the reality of grace. For even the knowledge you have is a gift of God's grace. It is not of your own doing. The grace of God opened your eyes to the knowledge of Jesus. The grace of God gave you understanding of the redemption of your soul through Jesus. The grace of God has given you all things for this life and for eternity. May our lives be a constant expression of God's grace. We must grow in grace. Jesus came. He accomplished all of that on our behalf. Jesus is coming again. And while we wait, we are to be all about Jesus and his mission. And we are to amplify his kingdom alone. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you so much for the privilege I've had to share your word with these people today. Not just today, but over the last 27 years with this group. 44 plus years in total of teaching and preaching. Not because of anything I was worthy of doing but because you chose a young man who was corrupted by the world's culture. And you transformed me into someone who is consistent with Christ's character. And Lord, many that are sitting in this room or listening on the internet today are still being corrupted by culture. Rather than being sanctified to become consistent without contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ so the kingdom of God may be amplified. For we have only one hope and that hope is in Jesus. We have only one thing to celebrate and that is that Jesus came to save me from my sin. And he sought me and he bought me and he gave me a living hope. Would you stand?